0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Martin Perlberger, an entertainment and industry legal specialist in distribution, financing, intellectual rights and negotiation talks to a career spanning more than 50 years in the rapidly changing entertainment world. Welcome to In Discussion, my guest today, Martin Perlberger, an entertainment and industry legal specialist in distribution, financing, and intellectual rights, has numerous credits in film and television projects, spanning more than 50 years, a Stanford University graduate, and among a long line of achievements admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as many other distinguished roles in both the United States and abroad. Martin, welcome. Glad to be here. Martin, uh, you were uh, born in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, you obviously uh, decided to to emigrate to the United States. What was the uh, what was behind that? Why did you decide to do that?
2: My parents took me.
1: And uh, did your your parents came with you to the United States? They
2: came with me. Yes, I mean I came with them.
1: And you uh, then attended uh, Stanford University. Yes, and. Did you realise at a at a fairly young age that you, that you wanted to move into the legal profession, and and did that uh, uh, did that turn out uh, in, in order in in accordance with your expectations, especially moving into the entertainment industry? Not really. But it was something that you uh, you have certainly enjoyed over the years. Being, in I the- have
2: enjoyed it over the years.
1: And the, the uh, credits that you have are quite amazing, uh, you've, you've uh, been working both uh, television and film uh, and stage, uh, working through films like The Last Emperor, The Lion in Winter, uh, etc. Uh, are there any of those particular films that you remember well, uh, any that really stick out to you as being uh, more memorable?
2: Well, uh, a variety. Uh, The line in winter uh, was a a very, very high-pressure rush job to negotiate and document all the major contracts with the stars, the director, the financier, the distributor, in a little more than a week. And it, it, it ended up being my very first ever visit to the city of London, where all this took place.
1: Those sorts of films uh, made so many years ago, uh, was it very different uh, being involved in the film business then uh, as it is now, uh, given uh, the, the, the rise of technology and, and the, the way that distribution has changed so much in the world?
2: Uh, from my viewpoint as, as a legal specialist, no, not very different. Uh, you always had to be careful not to overlook the likelihood if not the certainty that technology is going to change and it will continue to do so.
1: What is it about the films and the, the, the stories themselves that, that you have to engage in as a legal specialist? Uh, how do you look at a project? Do you, do you actually examine uh the, the story behind it uh, as well as the financing and the the perspective distribution H- how does that work for uh, somebody who is going to negotiate and bec- become so involved in a, a project like this
2: uh, I'm primarily looking at it from the viewpoint of the needs of my client uh, whoever that may be in a particular project sometimes more than one in a project and the needs and uh, requirements of the other parties to the project. uh, That's really uh, my focus.
1: Was it um, uh, quite amazing to to find yourself uh, in the entertainment industry at this stage? Obviously you didn't expect to to become involved in it. Uh, Was it something that became a great interest beyond just being a a, a legal participant?
2: Uh, Well, yes. Uh, Every project in which I am retained to advise and perform legal services uh, uh, is something I try to learn as much about as possible, uh, and uh, certainly all aspects of the entertainment industry qualify there very definitely.
1: And uh, these are obviously uh, the most profound films that you were involved in. obviously you have a long line of credits here uh, the films uh, were they becoming a, a landmark for you and was that charting your career at that stage? H- had you been offered to become involved in stage and television or was it just the, the, the film activity that, uh, that consumed you?
2: It was a matter of, uh, of uh, one project leading to another, sometimes more than one at the same time and uh, I was concerned more with the individuals and the companies involved rather than the subject matter of their film or television or stage or book or whatever.
1: So as a, a, a legal specialist uh, advising in distribution, advising in intellectual property rights, for an individual like you, what are the, the main uh, remits that you have? What, what is the focus that you have to ensure that uh, a project um, actually finds its feet uh, from the early days of conception right through to post-production and distribution?
2: Well, what I try to do is uh, think about and utilize and advise my clients of what else is likely uh, to happen or, or or can be expected so as to be prepared in advance and not be uh, surprised by something adverse that should have been constantly considered uh, at the outset of a representation or a project
1: and back in those days, of course, you did not have the um, the social media or the internet uh, or many of these marketing paradigms. Uh, how different was it back then to how you see it now? Was it a, a more difficult process to be able to find that investment to find the distribution?
2: Uh, I was uh, really focused very much on trying to uh, make deals happen and be uh, legally as tight as possible and be uh, documented in such a way as not to lead to uh, much of a chance of litigation rather than actually uh, putting financing together with projects, together with talent. Uh, that was more the function of uh, agents or company executives or my individual or company clients. Uh,
1: looking back on these films, do you do you see uh, films uh, such as the, the Last Emperor, The Lion in Winter, uh, etc. Do you do you see them um, as exceeding the expectations that they had uh, when you were first brought into a project? Yes. What was it about them? Do you think it's the uh, the names, uh, the actors behind them that that makes something like this work? Or, or?
2: well, it depends. I think if you take two kind of old films, *A Lion in Winter* and *The Last Emperor*. they were different. In *A Line in Winter*, it was uh, not only that it was from a very successful playwright and a very successful screenwriter, but uh, it, it was a, a film rendered on film, on the medium of film, in a very, very, very clear and uh, emotional way. So that I, for one, when I saw the film, I thought I could actually feel and smell some of these medieval surroundings that are depicted on the film, and that I thought, for me, was a real key element of this production. On the other hand, on The Last Emperor, I was privileged to read the screenplay before the film got started. And I thought it was one of the best things in any medium of writing that I had ever read. I think Bernardo Bertolucci and his, uh, his, uh, I think his brother-in-law, his co-writer, were absolutely brilliant writers. And uh, the film lived up fully to the quality of the screenplay, but the screenplay is what really wrote me in. As it turned out, when that film was produced, uh, the intention of Bernardo Bertolucci had before, he put together uh... for the project that happened he had in mind to make this a ten or twelve hour miniseries and uh... he reluctantly uh... agreed to make it a feature film uh, which didn't have anything on the screen that he thought should be on the screen on his story but in the process he shot enough footage so that in some countries i remember uh, by the way of example australia he was able to get his four-hour version of this film uh, released in two uh, segments, a little bit like a like a TV miniseries. Uh,
1: films like that, of course, are absolutely iconic. If you look at the Lawrence of Arabia, um, the, the David Lean films, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai, uh, those films really, uh, uh, of that elk, are, are not made anymore. Uh, would you agree with that?
2: No. I think that a new one like this comes along uh, every once in a while, sometimes with frequency i don't i don 't think there's that big a change
1: What sort of films would you cite uh, that are that are being made today that would would uh, remind you of of those extraordinary films uh, back in those days?
2: Well, it was also not a modern film, but I had nothing to do with it except in a very um, Uh, Elementary way, I thought that the first and even the second Godfather film uh, were at that level.
1: Now there have been quality
2: of the film, yeah, not the subject matter, but the quality of the films. I think uh, in all of these was uh, really epic.
1: There have surely been many changes uh, over the years uh, from the old uh, studio system in Hollywood. Um, to the film productions being made uh, today by corporations. How, how did that change uh, f- uh, you, you and, and your effect and, and what you did for the star clients and the directors and the writers?
2: Well, the decision-making process was different because the decision-makers had different motivations. Uh, when I uh, became active uh, in... Representing clients in this industry The really old studio system Where studios had signed up stars And directors and writers On a kind of a year-to-year basis And built them up That had already gone by the wayside And given way to so-called Independent-type production That studios were still involved But they were more involved In furnishing production facilities Financing and uh, distribution But uh, where I think uh, there There is a the real development is uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the different uh, uh, treatment of various uh, elements that go into a film. Uh, right uh, in, in recent times with the corporates uh, running uh, many of the studios, you find that the real decision makers are basically executives or, it's another word, for employees. They don't have their own money on the line. And 30 or more years ago, the ultimate decision makers frequently dealt with or themselves had their own money on the line by virtue of having control and a major interest and ownership in the entity which provided the production facilities and the financing and the distribution. Now, it's more or less a a question of, of, uh, this is not universally applicable of executives uh, and other decision makers uh, basing their decisions on whether it is more or less likely to give them the next promotion rather than uh, whether it's going to accomplish something beyond that. Uh,
1: So in other words it becomes about the bottom line as it were rather than the creative energy?
2: Uh, in my uh, viewpoint, they don't even have the bottom line in mind because I frankly don't know which bottom line really comes out because so many bottom lines are uh, infused by elements uh, other than the, uh, the entertainment element. Uh, but uh, it's more a matter of uh, not making the kind of decisions that would risk uh, somebody's career because uh, they didn't want to risk their career. They, they want to uh, uh, not be blamed for making a decision for the wrong reason, regardless of how wrong the decision is. So for example, the whole growth of the uh, star system, the compensation for stars, actors, directors, and writers, uh, in my view, is based on the fact that uh, more and more of the executives have in the back of their mind, if I choose a project with a so-called proven talent, Uh, roster, then if it's a flop, it's not my fault because I got all the right elements together and so I'll go right ahead. Uh, On the other hand, if they choose a project which is really much more exciting and innovative and and likely to be a big runaway hit like some of the movies recently that were made on choosing budgets and grossed $100 million or more, those kind of decisions are not made anymore by the the people in these companies because uh, they figure they have Nothing to gain because if one of these elements really breaks out into a hit, they won't get the credit of making a major decision. But if it's a flop, they'll get the blame for not putting elements together that are more likely, based on corporate statistics, to uh, be good ticket sellers.
1: Are there films uh, uh, back in the days of The Last Emperor, The Lion in Winter, that were financed by the stars rather than uh, the the studios behind them?
2: Uh, Not those two, for sure. Those two also were not studio pictures. Uh, The the Lion in Winter, uh, the way it ended up finally uh, on the screen was put together by a wonderful British producer called Jeremy Thomas, who's always been independent. And who raised the financing? Independent, uh, based out of London primarily, uh, and uh, produced uh, the picture on location. Locations were generally attributed to uh, to the uh, reputation of Bertolucci had in China. Uh, he was he considered himself a Maoist, although he must have been at that time by far the richest Maoist <laughs> around. And uh, uh, it, it didn't have anything with studios. Once the film was. Uh, completed or where it was on the way to completion, Jeremy Thomas and his team uh, uh, got various distributors. Uh, they made a deal with, uh, with uh, Columbia Pictures for uh, American distribution when David Putnam was the head of uh, Columbia Pictures. And by the time the film was ready to be distributed, David Putnam wasn't with the company anymore and the film didn't get the kind of treatment that a lot of people think it should have gotten by Columbia because the next management had no particular reason to uh, promote a decision made by the prior management, which at that time was David Putnam. Uh, in the case of Lion line in winter, uh, it was put together uh, one emergency after the other very, very quickly. Uh, there were uh, commitments to various elements, including the star of the picture, which had to be paid off on a so-called pay-or-play basis because their commitments uh, had script problems and they couldn't be started when the commitments started. So my then senior partner, uh, Leon Kaplan, who represented several of the elements, and I was partner in his firm, I worked on them. Uh, in the line in winter, put together another team, which utilized the uh, the commitments for those star elements, and then found. Uh, some complicated uh, co-production, co-financing arrangements uh, internationally to raise the finance and arrange for the distribution of the picture. Actually, it was a company which, at that time, was called uh, I think it was NBC Pictures, headed by a man named Joe Levine, who was rarely uh, associated with high-quality pictures, but this certainly was one who uh, put up the financing and furnished some of the distribution uh, of uh, the line in winter at that time. And we- it came. My job, along with others, to participate with other executives and some of the legal officials, to uh, kind of craft uh, out of nothing from scratch uh, a set of deals that would work and would sign at their full uh, then prevailing salaries, Catherine Hepburn and uh, Peter O'Toole and all the other elements, and a brand new director who had only done commercials before that time. Uh, who directed this wonderful film and uh, satisfied the various distribution and financing elements. So we had the whole package done before the film started shooting.
0: They kissed sweetly, didn't they? I'll have him next time. I can wait. Ah, there you are. My comfort and my company. We're locked in for another year Four seasons more. What a desolation. What a life's work.
1: Can we talk a bit about uh, Blake Edwards? Um, Working with him on many of the classic films. Um, You had The Great Race and then of course you were involved with the wonderful Pink Panther film uh, with Peter Sellers, uh, David Niven. Um, What sort of experience did did you have with those films?
2: Well, I had a very good experience in terms of everybody always was anxious to uh, make the kind of films that Blake that Edwards was expected to make, and they came through most of the time. Uh, a lot of times, but uh, when a film either went over budget or it didn't come out the way everybody hoped it would come out, uh, he took more of the blame than from what I could see, and I wasn't there on the set, that he deserved. Uh, for example, there was a film, Silco Nameless, which was actually produced and financed with another major client of my former law firm, Uh, and uh, Blake and everybody else knew the script wasn't ready, but they had certain commitments, and they wanted him to start anyway, and then when, as was naturally to be expected, the film went over budget and didn't really measure up to what it should have been, uh, it was chalked up to Blake Edwards, although he was (laughs) opposed to doing that. Uh, and I think Blake's talents uh, just survived all kinds of issues and uh, came through, fortunately, in a lot of the films, including the Pink Panther series, that uh, uh, he did uh, direct. And many of them he wrote or produced or both. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, he was a wonderful client with whom to work, uh, very considered and understanding. And uh, I always had it. Difficult time hearing other people, more experienced than I by far, and in the entertainment industry, say that it was always difficult to to work with Blake Edwards. I didn't find that to be the case, even though he certainly was uh, difficult to persuade uh, on a topic in the filmmaking area where he uh, probably knew better. I didn't have that problem in the legal area because he never had any interest or professed to have any knowledge about contracts and the law. <laughs>
1: That was an amazing time, though, the, the Peter Sellers, David Niven films, uh, the, the Pink Panthers. Uh, uh, what a remarkable period. Um, well, they
2: were really a lot of fun. Even though they were made more or less with major studio financing production, uh, they really never followed the schedule and the script. It was the Blake Edwards and Peter Sellers and David Niven to some extent, too, who kind of made it up as they went along and, and knew exactly what to do, how to do it, and stay on schedule and stay in budget
1: now in that process if they are making it up as they go along uh, whatever reason that may be because they're adapting the script or they're uh, creating different styles um, how much are you involved in that process at that stage uh, are you are you sort of are you standing there with a yielding a stick and and telling them to move on as quickly as possible how does on the it,
2: contrary i am sitting in my <laughs> office warding off phone calls by people who complained about. Uh, the the creative team not sticking to the subject, and since I never represented Peter Sellers, but Blake Edwards uh, uh, Peter Sellers was a driving force in doing this as you go along, because he had such a unique talent and uh, it was his personality really that made the Pink Panther into what it became, as is evidenced by the other Pink Panther films, none of which could ever measure up to the Peter Sellers Pink Panthers
1: after that, uh, after those those films, you uh, moved on to Bedazzled, uh, the Stanley Donnan, and, and starring Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Um, that must have been a wonderful experience, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, for me, uh, being this Englishman and growing up with them, I, I just found them quite extraordinary on film. Um, how was that film for you, Martin?
2: Well, that was a fantastic experience. Uh, I had never heard of Peter Cook and Dolly Moore until Stanley Donnan, a long-time client of my former law firm, whom I did a lot of the work, uh, brought them. He he had, at that time, a base in London. He brought them to the attention of what eventually turned out to be 20th Century Fox, the studio that financed it. And I didn't know who they were, and I became acquainted through Stanley Donnan and who they were, and I was really impressed with them as individuals and as a team, uh, and the three of them, uh, either Cook, Dudley Moore, and Stanley Donnan, were able to make this film Bedazzle on an extremely low budget, I don't remember the figures, on a basis where they took almost no salaries uh, uh, in the film in exchange for uh, a percentage of the gross of the kind that nobody ever got until years and years later when it became the big star deal, because they basically, uh, uh, Treated, they and twenty twenty fox a percentage what it was supposed to be, which is in exchange for lowering your salary or not getting the salary increase that you want on the other the budget, you participate not only in the investment of making a film for less than what you could get in terms of payment up front of the budget, but you also participate on the upside in a meaningful way. and in bedazzle, that was very significant. Again there unfortunately, the regime, I forgot who they were at Fox, who uh, green-lighted the film and supervised it, It wasn't in the management of the company by the time the film was ready for release, and while the film has become a so-called cult film, still very popular, uh, it never did the business at the time it was released that I think it should have, if it had been properly marketed.
1: I suppose in many ways it's unknown how any film is going to perform I suppose you you have the integrity of the stars, uh, 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 the the studios or the financial, but b- pr- primarily uh, the stars themselves. Bedazzled, obviously, uh, was that uh, expected uh, to become such a great hit and a, a long time? Um no,
2: no, it wasn't by by, by anybody except maybe Stanley Don and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. But Peter Cook and Dudley Moore at that time had no recognition whatsoever in the American market and I don't know what kind of recognition they had outside of the UK uh elsewhere in the world uh but Stanley Donen had a terrific uh, reputation but very the, the, seldom uh in uh, the American market and also other markets does a director uh, sell tickets
1: then of course uh, Norman Lear. Can we can we talk about Norman Lear? Uh, oh yes, at that period, uh, what what was uh, well,
2: Norman Lear's period isn't over yet. But uh, back in the days when he did All uh, in the Family and he did a lot of feature pictures, uh, he was fantastic. But He knew a lot about law and society. But he wasn't limited to entertainment.
1: And of course the uh, film Cold Turkey, starring Dick Van Dyke, um, that that sort of uh, film was hugely successful. Uh, sometimes do you look back on these and, and wonder in, in some aspects why they are more successful than expected? Is there anything that, that you can be intuitive about in this business as, as being on the legal side?
2: Well, the thing I'm intuitive about on whether or not the film is likely to be successful, anybody who says they know it isn't telling the truth. <laughs>
1: You moved through um, uh, several films, uh, Young Lovers, Cotton Comes to Harlem, and now you're back again with Darling Lily, uh, directed by Blake Edwards. Uh, as these films progress and you see these individuals grow in, in their profession, in their, in their career, uh, did you see a change in the way that Blake was working by then, or was he still very much the Blake Edwards that you knew from several films back?
2: It was the same Blake Edwards. For Blake Edwards, uh, uh, as, as I understand it uh, and observe it, uh, like a lot of other people, including myself, he learned and he grew mostly forward, sometimes a little sideways, from every experience he had. Not only the films he made, but also what happened in his life outside of the film making. And he had a lot of experiences, and he's still a very, very wonderful man. Uh, and. Uh, uh, you know he's changed altogether now he's now a fantastic artist doing mostly sculptures
1: and you uh still see somebody like blake edwards uh making more films
2: no i mean there's nobody like blake edwards but as far as i know blake edwards is not ever going to make a film
1: after that uh he
2: makes sculptures that are beautiful and very successful very much in demand by collectors
1: then he's obviously found uh, his artist. his his final career um, because I have. Well, had, I don't know about uh,
2: final, uh, but it's his current career.
1: <laughs> now I know that. Yeah, hundred. <laughs> I know that uh, one of your favourites is uh, Never on Sunday, uh, uh, Jules Dassin, and and there is a track from that film that you so love. Oh yeah. And uh... what was it about that film that that inspired you so much? And and this particular track um, was that a time in your life that, that that had a great significance for for you, Martin?
2: Well, I learned a lot of uh, uh, things that were valuable to me from doing the work on uh, that film. It was a film uh, made by an American director who was on, I think he was on or close to the so-called blacklist when. Everybody was accused of being a communist and they didn't want to rat on their colleagues who were uh, uh, maybe members of the Communist Party when they were teenagers or whatever, that whole ugly period. He uh, worked mostly abroad and not with that great financial success until this uh, particular movie came along. Uh, And he starred in it a woman that nobody ever heard of in America, Melina Mercuri, who uh, I think... uh, was at that time extremely talented from what I saw of her in the film and performances and otherwise. And uh, uh, the, the story uh, that, uh, I mean, she was asked nothing wrote the story, but mm, I think Melina participated and she knew a lot uh, about that kind of life and where the story took place. It was very simple, very well done, very simple, no special effects or nothing fancy. And I think that, as in many films, the music Uh, was really important. The difference between this film and a lot of other films is that in this film, everybody recognized when a film was out in the public how significant the music was. In lots of other films, people don't recognize that um, music sometimes is as important as a script in how to move a film along. But that one uh, made it really clear, and uh, I felt very honored to be able to work uh, on on a project of, of people of that caliber.
1: Let's take a listen to Never on
0: Sunday. Puftanustolimani <muchly>
1: What is it that you believe made it a breakout foreign film in America?
2: I'm uh, not sure it was a foreign film. It was financed and distributed by United Artists, and uh, it was, of course, made on location. I'm not sure I would consider it a foreign film as such. it's made in the English language, uh, uh, and I have no idea what makes a film a success or not. I, I, don't, I have no idea. It was a lucky combination of wonderful elements in making and distributing and marketing the film and uh, the public was open to it and nothing like it had been seen before and uh, it got tremendous word of mouth and uh, they capitalized on it uh, very smartly and i think the soundtrack was more successful than the film certainly over (laughs) the years Uh, and that probably had a lot to do with the success of the film
1: I guess this reminds me of a program uh, that I shared with the film actor Michael York a couple of weeks ago, who profoundly said, you know, uh, looking back over my career, there is always the element of luck. And I guess that uh, is uh, as much the case in uh, the success of any film as it is uh, for the success of an actor.
2: It's an element, yes, but it's not the whole thing.
1: You moved into uh, television, and uh, can you tell me, what are the, uh, what are the different aspects with television uh, uh, over working in film? Uh, what are the, uh, the main uh, points that you have to consider in, in uh, the legal profession when it, when it comes to the television business?
2: Well, uh, until maybe, well, I don't know, the uh, middle 80s or somewhere around there, maybe a little later, Uh, television was not about pleasing the audience. It was about pleasing the advertisers. And that's a very, very different way, uh, not only creatively, but also uh, legally and financially, on how to make the product. Uh, even though television had had great success since the beginning showing movies that were made for an audience to sell tickets, uh, that didn't really... From my viewpoint, uh, define the whole framework and uh, justification of making television. That doesn't mean that television uh, didn't uh, draw big audiences and make bold statements and sometimes uh, did so in spite of the concern about whether advertisers would actually sponsor or buy commercials on the television. But still, I think that was the major difference between commercial network television, which is the area in which I started to be involved in television, and motion pictures, which basically were never made with the idea of uh, will they show uh, well on a network uh, a TV series or something like that. Well, know, eventually that, that, it did happen in a
1: lot of movies. When did that, that role start to reverse, if indeed it did? Uh, when was that transition
2: I don't know what you mean by reverse.
1: Where, where it looked less at the advertisers and more of ab- about the script and the creativity of the program itself.
2: Well, when the other revenue streams became available to television other than the advertisers, c- cable and, uh, uh, you know, all the new media uh, that, that depended not on particular commercials for particular series, but depended more on drawing the audience and when audiences were expected to pay rather than just uh, get free access to view the television.
1: The world has changed. We are seeing huge advances in technology. We're seeing podcasting and streaming on the internet, uh, which is certainly diluting the strength of television now. Uh, What is your own personal view uh, about that dynamic that possibly uh, could take viewers away from the television box and and have them uh, mainly on the uh, on the web uh, looking at material?
2: Well, I think there is a good possibility that it will be complementary and add to the viewing on the television set. Uh, I can't help but feel uh, that uh, looking at a product on a Uh, screen in a home, even if it's 50 or 60 or 70 inches screen, is not comparable to looking at entertainment in a theater on a large screen with all this technology. And I know that as of last week, everybody's trying to sell 3D television sets. Uh, I would not bet a lot of money on 3D being around for very long because uh, as opposed to color, 3D has been tried in various forms for at least 50 years that I've heard of, maybe longer, and uh, didn't ever last. Uh, Every time they tried it, the technology was a little different, and lasted a little longer, but it never actually worked, Uh, and I think until there's some kind of a 3D process that is really different from 2D, doesn't require glasses and all these other technical requirements, Uh, I'm not sure that it's really going to make a difference. In other words, I think Avatar uh, would have been seen by as many people who bought tickets in 2D than in 3D, except for the fact that for 3D and especially IMAX, uh, they could charge a lot more for the tickets.
1: That film was a risk, I think you can say, uh, for Jim Cameron uh... when you throw uh... in excess of three hundred million dollars into a film and obviously that risk uh... paid off um... do you see that uh... setting a, a president in the industry this particular film for filmmakers and financiers
2: president uh, in terms of what
1: well in terms of the way that it can shape the audience uh... into uh... being coming immersed uh, in a in a film uh, into changing their perspective um, uh, is is that something that is quite possible with this sort of delivery, or are you saying that two d will remain just as strong in the future
2: Well, uh, not sure what the future will hold. I just am not very confident uh, that Two that 3D is going to be around for very long is a significant factor, worth all the extra effort and money that it takes. Now, when there is, if there ever is a film of the caliber of Jim Cameron's Avatar, maybe yes, but there aren't going to be a lot more Avatars.
1: Uh, simply from the perspective that there will no. not be the the financiers to. Oh no, to there's no other this. Jim Camerons. So really, he's so the
2: financing would be there, but there, I don't think there are a lot of Jim Camerons around. So, uh,
1: so I and guess he has that a unique
2: put... combination of talents—being a writer, producer, director, experience, and all that—and I think that's very unique, and uh, that's his contribution to our society as well as the entertainment industry. But uh, I don't know anybody else who uh, would try to do what he tried to do and put into it what he put into it. I mean, I think it was over ten years that he hadn't had a film out. And not many people, even of a fraction of his uh, accomplishments, would dare stay out of the public's eye for that long.
1: It seems that television could be harmed by the interactive presence, by podcasting. Uh, You had indicated earlier that they may actually be complementary to each other. Um, Do you know how that would work, how uh, Fox Television or, or a company like that could uh, merge both deliveries and be successful at it?
2: No, I don't really know how that would work. All I know is that I would want to negotiate and document my deals and my contract in a way to try and protect uh, my client from being uh, undermined by some kind of a misinterpretation of uh, who gets paid what for which rights. But beyond that, I really have no way of telling uh, how they do it. I don't impinge on the artistic side uh, that much. Uh, I've come to the conclusion after some years of experience in what I do that I'm a creative person because I help people create deals. And I think that's another way to be creative in addition to the people who create films and television and stage plays and books and whatever else.
1: In the interactive world you have supported uh, Crash Bandicoot and Strike Point. Um, were they uh, as successful as you uh, w- expected them to be? Yes. What is it, what is it uh, that you have to consider that is different about uh, that interactive approach uh, compared to the television or the film?
2: A, a sensible combination of technology and artistry. And on um, some of these projects, uh, I saw that there were capable, reputable people who are in the technology side and capable reputable people in the creative artistic side who recognize each other's value and and that they needed each other and that's why I thought that uh, they could be expected to uh, be successful.
1: I guess that uh, in many of these uh, interactive uh, shows or programs there is a measure of uh, research and development. Uh, Is that taken into account um, when you when you uh, oversee this legally
2: well yes, uh, especially because it's always important to not be surprised by who may claim ownership of the results of the research and development
1: and uh, our clients at the moment are asking you to negotiate uh, deals that just involve the internet distribution yes, and how do you see that evolving over the next two or three years
2: well uh, and we flip on it very carefully.
1: So, uh,
2: so the, the, the changes are coming, and while uh, form, some of them can be of substance, and I think one has to be constantly on guard and keep their eyes wide open uh, to see what may come down the pike next that somebody else may bring that you don't expect.
1: And how do you Uh, see that?
2: I I think that from the time I was a young child, uh, I visualized television as something much more technologically advanced than it is today, with paper-thin screens, uh, whether it's in homes or other places, and uh, much more easily capable to be manipulated than today's most modern television sets available commercially. And I don't know what effect that would have on the content.
1: What is it uh, that you see uh, in the next five or ten years in the ent- entertainment industry as a whole? How do you see films being delivered and financed uh, given the the huge uh, technological advan- advancements that we're seeing this well, year?
2: Well, I, I think we are much closer now, uh, maybe over the next five or ten years, to something that a friend of mine, a former client of mine, Sam Goldwyn Jr., told me 30, 40 years ago and that is that there will be no more prints, that what are now considered films on film that are distributed theatrically will be distributed maybe in auditoriums of some kind, but uh, electronically in as good or better quality than film today, which is not yet happening today, but uh, I think that's going to be a major, major change, and it probably will be within the next five to ten years, and that's going to affect everything else. Because you can distribute these electronically to auditorium, you may be able to distribute them electronically in all kinds of other places and media.
1: Is that suggesting, s- possibly, that the theatre is not going to become as strong a venue or part of the culture for people in the future?
2: Well, yes and no. Uh, I have uh, uh, part of my professional activity has been uh, aside from the entertainment industry and among others, the real estate industry. And I have always felt that theater owners should have uh, thought a lot more of themselves as being a real estate business rather than an entertainment business, because still, many, many theaters these days are empty during the height of the business day, or almost empty. And there are people who would be uh, readily available to use the wonderful facilities as they exist of theaters for all kinds of activities and meetings and conventions that are now uh, going to specialized convention centers, hotel ballrooms and stuff like that. I think eventually, uh, theater owners will realize that uh, whether they own or rent their real estate, that they're in a real estate business. And that way they have a whole new stream of income and the importance to them of the income from films is gonna change.
1: So in other words, uh, that could indicate with the oncoming uh, technology that we see with 3D televisions f- as an example, uh, as well as uh, the interactive development, that perhaps uh, our culture, uh, perhaps people will decide to um, turn away from the theatrical setting and, and stay at home, essentially?
2: Uh, there have been... Uh, uh Premature rumors of that for a long time. Uh, I was told a story that in the 1940s, during the Second World War, a lot of people in Hollywood made so-called B-pictures and worse because they had a guaranteed audience. The audience had no place else to go in the Second World War except go to see movies, which were very inexpensive at that time. And as a result, some of those producers, aside from the major studios, Got wonderful financing to produce their output from uh, banks, and the most prominent bank at the time in that business was the Bank of America. And when World War II had wound down, and uh, people were able to do other entertainments, and movies became more sophisticated, and B movies couldn't really be sold in theaters anymore, uh, Bank of America, among others, foreclosed on all those pictures in which they'd lent money, which never made their money back. ended up with a very large library of B-pictures. And uh, somebody finally uh, got the idea on the Bank of America that they didn't just have to wait until the next disaster came, and people would pay for these B-pictures to see in a theater. Now we had television. And so they were the ones who broke the barrier of putting movies on television, and that barrier was composed primarily of the... uh, actors and writers and directors guilds and studios to some extent also uh, and theater owners but uh, the bank of america owning these foreclosed pictures by the hundreds had no such limitations because they uh, got their pictures through foreclosure proceedings free and clear of anybody's claims Mm. and they started the business of showing movies on television uh, selling them to television stations and networks rather and so these things can happen again
1: Looking back over your long. And by the
2: way, it didn't kill the theater business at all. But I, I read that in the year 2009, the theaters took in more money to box office than ever before, before adjusting for inflation, of course, but still.
1: So it could possibly be that, that uh, technology is not going to do what we think it's necessarily going to do. It could be that uh, we're so grounded and used to that theatre as a uh, cultural and social setting that it may well remain.
2: Well, I think that's the issue. Are we, uh, current generations and generations coming on, really used to the theatre? If we are, that's a big plus for the theatres. But I don't know if people are going to continue to be used to go to the theatre. Uh, I had periods in my lifetime where for a long time I wouldn't see five or six movies a year in a theater. Then I had periods where i see five or six a month over a year or more period. So I don't know what the general public uh, will feel about uh, being used to see movies in theaters. It depends to some extent on what they can see without the time and expense of going to theaters. And I don't really... I who think 3D is important in that one way or the other. High definition maybe, but 3D, I don't think so.
1: Looking back over your long career, Martin, uh, could you tell me as we close down in the final minutes of the program, what are the highlights for you? What are those moments that meant so much to you?
2: Oh, I don't know how to pick out a particular set of moments or careers. I think the entire experience put together has been very rewarding to me in in many ways and continues to be uh, as I said earlier, uh, my main appeal uh, in the entertainment industry is the people involved the business people, the, the creative people, uh, the marketing people uh, they are the ones that really appeal to me a lot and uh, another element which has always been one of my particular uh, preferences in life is it is a really international business and I'm all for international
1: which really does suppose that the internet could become very important in the future uh, we we talk about the theater and the television but if uh, if great films and uh, uh, great projects are going to reach an international audience it could be that the internet will be the, the saving grace at the end of the day to increase well, that audience potential?
2: It, it, sure, it has to be saved. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about whether copyright laws are good or bad for the audience and for the creative people. But basically, uh, as we have in America, we have in our Constitution a provision that Congress shall pass laws for the encouragement of authors and inventors. Uh, if we uh, find that uh, legally and technologically it becomes too difficult, Uh, to see to it that the people who create artistic and creative works uh, get compensated when they do very well and get very well received. We won't see a lot more good creative and artistic works. And I think that's kind of a swinging pendulum back and forth which will never stop in the middle and never go over the top. It will keep swinging back and forth.
1: Well, in that event then the most important thing to do is to simplify the copyright laws Uh, and that possibly could be developed through the internet delivery so that it makes it so much easier for uh, filmmakers and producers to, to have less restrictions and at the end of the well, day to make more, more revenue.
2: Yeah, My views about the copyright law not being simple is that it is due largely to the uh, lobbyists which have their influence through campaign contributions and which really don't allow for sensible law making.
1: Of course, with uh, recent uh, developments in the delivery of, of video home home delivery, uh, pay on pay on demand, uh, we see a lot of film piracy. Uh, how is that something that can be dealt with as we move forward?
2: I uh, don't really know. Um, I, I admire a lot of the people and companies around the world who are finding ways to deal with it to some extent, even in countries like Taiwan and China and. and, and European countries: a combination of uh, public education, uh, technology, and uh, uh, different uh, tweaking of the legal regime. Uh, it's it's going to be a, uh, a difficult thing to do. Uh, there was a time, the last maybe 30 years or so ago, where what's now called piracy for movies, it was basically tra- plagiarism was extremely prevalent in books very popular american european books were printed without copyright to, to, uh, dues or payments of any kind in mostly in taiwan and exported around the world at a fraction of the price uh, of the retail price uh, of properly published books and uh, i don't know exactly uh, how to decide which particular element uh, slowed that down Included certainly was the pressure of oral governments on the government of Taiwan at the time, and then also the maturing of Taiwan as a country who finally realized that they weren't hurting only foreign authors, they were also hurting their own authors by not protecting uh, the work of the authors.
1: Well, looking back on all of this and your wonderful career, Martin, uh, are you going to be writing a book or. or Producing something that can illustrate the the many changes that you've seen over your career.
2: No plans in that direction at all.
1: <laughs> Martin, it has... I'm,
2: I'm waiting for the time when I can uh, live without having to read for work all the time so I can resume reading for pleasure, which I haven't been able to do in the last several decades.
1: Well, I certainly hope that you can... Um, aspire to that and find that free time it has (laughs) been a enormous pleasure talking to you today and uh, thank you so much for being on in discussion it was a great privilege martin
2: well you're very welcome
1: and then thank you to our listeners today for listening to martin perlberger and we hope that you have enjoyed the show as much as i have wherever you may be in this world good morning good afternoon and good evening (laughs)